Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Owl Explains podcast. I am Silvia Sanchez, and I am really excited to be joined today by Professor Yesha Yadav, Professor of Law and Associate Dean at Vanderbilt Law School. Her research focuses on market structure, exchange design, and digital asset regulation. So, Yesha, we're super glad to have you today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Silvia. It's such a pleasure to get to be on Owl Explained. I am super excited to get to have this conversation. Great. Awesome. And today we're going to be talking all about DeFi. DeFi regulation. So let's get started um, with a very basic question. Can you provide a brief overview of what decentralized finance, of what DeFi is, and how it differs from traditional finance? Yeah, it's 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 the big question of the day, which is trying to understand what this technology actually does. Now, first thing to start with is what our financial system has traditionally looked like, which is very much based on the concept that you have some key uh, people in the middle that are used to performing a whole bunch of functions that we have come to rely on. So these are intermediaries. Um, They stand in the middle of different kinds of financial interactions. Uh, For example, banks are in the middle um, of you and me, Sylvia. If I want to send you some money, um, the bank will check that I have the money in my account. will make sure that I am who I am and then sends that money to you and then your bank will do the same thing. So that's intermediation. It makes life, you know, has traditionally just um, created a way in which we are able to facilitate a lot of our uh, transactions in um, payments, in banking, in um, securities trading, commodities trading, and so forth. They stand in the middle, they match people, they check, and they do all these different things. Now, that's a world in which we have had, you know, more or less kind of analog interactions in some ways, right? Like that's a world in which we didn't have the supercomputers that we have today. But clearly we have evolved into a world in which algorithmic automated programs can potentially be used to perform a whole bunch of functions that proxy for the kinds of things that intermediaries have traditionally done. So, for example, if you look at uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, um, which is designed to be a a blockchain that doesn't function with banks or state governments or anything, the the computer software itself looks to perform the different checks. Um, And instead of one person doing it, like a bank, um, it's all of the different participating nodes or computers that are part of that network that do it. They run this common software, they perform these different checks, um, they make sure that, the, that there's integrity to the transactions that are coming in. And so the world of DeFi is essentially based on that model, a model in which we don't have intermediaries that are central intermediaries. We're running um, computer, you know, computerized programs, automated programs that are designed to approximate some of those functions that intermediaries have done, but also bring in new kinds of functionalities as well. But the salient point here is, is automated. It's, you know, using distributed networks of computers working together, running a common uh, protocol, and it's trying to create validation mechanisms that traditionally intermediaries have performed. And so DeFi is this world in which, um, you know, we are trying to, um, 
operate without the traditional intermediation structures. Wonderful. Awesome. And let's switch gears a little bit to talk about the legal and regulation side of DeFi, because I think that you provided a great definition, a good distinction between what it is, but with any new technology, or especially when we're involving um, this financial application, what are the key legal challenges and regulatory considerations surrounding the DeFi space, both at a global and at a local level? Yeah, it's 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 incredibly complex to um, work out how to apply traditional paradigms to DeFi. So our entire financial markets infrastructure and its regulation has very much been based on the notion of intermediaries. So we have intermediaries, uh, we apply regulation to these intermediaries. Um, we know that they are the ones that are accountable. So for example, if your payment that we were talking about, Sylvia, if our payment goes wrong, then the bank is ultimately responsible, right? So the law knows that the bank is, you know, moving this money. So the bank is going to be responsible for making sure this trade happens. How do we, how do we capture that legal accountability structure to DeFi? That's a question that regulators are really wrestling with. Who's responsible, right? Like who gets to have the liability for making sure that the network is working when it's distributed um, and when it's uh, decentralized in, in, in to various degrees? In that context, can we make all of the different participating computer um Uh, you know, uh, the folks who are running their computers, do we make them responsible? Do we make the developers responsible? Um, do we make some kind of other entity that's related to the network responsible? How do we consider responsibility, accountability, liability within that um, within that structure? Now, what's interesting, obviously, is that this, this problem has become incredibly urgent because since 2020, the amount of value that's going into DeFi protocols has increased enormously. Um, so DeFi has grown extensively um, since 2020 with, um, I believe the latest figures were something like 40 billion in total value locked within DeFi, I believe. Um, that was, a you know, last time I checked, which is a month or so ago. Um, but, you know, clearly there's money on the line here. Um, in addition, obviously, we've seen a variety of different risks emerge in DeFi, particularly where um, ventures start where they're not properly, you know, where they're not legitimate ventures. There've been a lot of rug pulls, for example, in the context of DeFi, where DeFi applications come forward, try and look legitimate, um, collect money from folks, and ultimately, you know, the program is just deleted and the person makes off with the money. So, um, so it's really important for regulators to get a handle on this, but how they do so is looking to be a very thorny problem because it's not fitting neatly onto our existing paradigms for regulation. Of course. And I love what you mentioned about those key things like responsibility, accountability, market integrity, because just like the internet, blockchains and crypto assets, DeFi, all of these things are global and they require somewhat of a of a coordinated regulatory approach based on these certain first principles like disclosure, market integrity, anti-fraud, privacy. Um, and to follow up on that thought, can you explain the role of smart contracts in DeFi applications and how may they intersect with these legal frameworks? Yeah, so smart contracts are a key part of many DeFi applications where they essentially um, operationalize the function 
of that particular application. So for example, um, if you have a trading application, then the smart contract will uh, trigger um, in the event that um, um, you know you your order matches with someone else's, and then you know that contract triggers to automatically match, and then make sure that the uh, that the trade becomes final within the application. Um, if you have a lending protocol, for example, the smart contract will uh, be triggered, um, or you know, will play a part in making sure that. In the event that um, the value of the collateral falls below a certain point, that that contract is, you know, that there's a liquidation event that happens. So being able to automate and operationalize certain kinds of processes needs smart contracts. Now, you know, the, the word smart contracts is an interesting one. Um, you know, it's it's basically code. It's automated code that triggers in the event that a particular set of conditions um, arise. So in the event that, for example, you have um, a flood, then an, a DeFi insurance um, application could automatically trigger to ensure that you're paid out. Um, if you have a car sale, um, to the extent that the title documentations match with what needs to be there, then the title can be transferred. So this is automated code. It's essential to DeFi because it allows for that application to operate in an automated, decentralized way, rely on automated programs to essentially trigger the movement of value, um, provided that certain checks are undertaken by the blockchain. So these are, you know, without without so-called smart contracts, otherwise known as automated code, basically, DeFi wouldn't really exist. Um, and so they very much are, part and parcel of that, the kind of DeFi that we recognize today, obviously Bitcoin and other things exist, but the kind of DeFi that we recognize today is becoming more sophisticated, more financialized, more capable of performing a whole host of functions like lending, trading, insurance, and so forth, um, that that kind of DeFi really depends on smart contracts for its um, full, fullest kind of flourishing, as it were. Very nice. And now that we're talking about this role of smart contracts and as we see them now in, in the market and in real life, and can you give some examples of some DeFi projects that, that stick out, especially when it comes to navigating these legal challenges? What lessons can, can we learn from their experiences? Yeah, so you know, there's a um, there's a number of different types of DeFi that have emerged as being very um, influential, impactful. Um, so, for example, this has been um, clearly, you know, this has been perhaps most in evidence in the context of lending. So a number of lending protocols, for example, have garnered enormous amounts of money, um, actual value that has been put into these protocols. Um, and they've allowed for, um, I mean, I can certainly name them Compound, for example, it was one, um, you know, Ave and others that have been um, extremely influential and impactful in the market. And what they've done essentially is allow for um, borrowing and lending within the application, um, allowing for this borrowing and lending to happen essentially automatically. Um, the ways in which um, there is risk management, as it were, is through collateralization. In other words, the application requires the deposit of collateral, usually in the form of crypto. Um, and the amount of money that you can borrow is then determined by how much collateral you put into the application and then you can borrow some fraction of what you put in um, as part of as part of your uh, as part of the borrowing that you can perform and obviously if the collateral falls in value then the smart contracts are triggered and and there's a liquidation event so um, 
you know, so these are, these are, you know, the basic design of some common lending protocols, but there's also trading protocols. So for example, you know, things like Uniswap um, has become a, a very influential market. Um, it's become influential, particularly in the wake of FTX, for example, where a lot of folks became um, extremely anxious, rightly, understandably, that their that their crypto was not safe on centralized exchanges at that point. And so um, following FTX, Uniswap saw like a whole um, uptick in the amount of value that was being put into these applications. So clearly, like there's appeal um, for this DeFi universe ecosystem uh, for those that are willing to explore the potential of essentially disintermediated finance, self-help, helping themselves, taking care of themselves, relying essentially on um, potentially cheaper forms of financial services where an intermediary is not involved, potentially cheaper, not always. Um, and one in which I think, you know, folks are maybe um, endorsing a particular vision of finance, which is, which does not involve the traditional Wall Street players. Um, that has seemed to be at least one source of the appeal for many people that it's, it's a little bit different. It's not the traditional Wall Street it's antithetical to Wall Street in some ways. Um, and so that has appealed to some people that have felt happy with Wall Street for a while. Okay, okay. Super interesting. Yeah, and I think it's a very um, dynamic and also diverse ecosystem and ever-changing. And, and as you were mentioning, like it gives opportunity to new players to enter, but that can both be, uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's a blessing, a curse, depending on, on how you navigate it. And also as we continue to follow that the train of thought how can DeFi projects work collaboratively with regulators to establish frameworks that balance innovation but also protection like how can we find that sweet spot yeah and i think that sweet spot is 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 extremely necessary right like um you know there is clearly risks involved here people's money people's hopes people's passions are engaged in this world in this ecosystem but we're not fully it's not we're not fully mature about how we address and handle the risks and regulators are still trying to understand what those risks should be and 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 how we can try and mitigate them so for example you know something that has been very much a part of the market structure and regulation is is disclosure right like this is a big big way in which Folks that are using particular services understand the risk that they take. But how do you do disclosure in the context of DeFi, right? Like, how do you get information to users in a way that they can understand and appreciate and engage with? How do you do that in the context of DeFi, right? So we're in a world in which regulators don't have, at present, a great answer to that. Um, what kind of what kind of information do we disclose? Is that information the same as the kind of information we see in traditional marketplaces? So, for example, um, if you look at disclosures that are performed um, for IPOs, you know, companies that go public, it's a very thick amount of documentation that goes into into play. Is that the kind of information we want going out 
in these applications. Um, you know, when you look at commodities and so forth, like there's a ton of, you know, disclosure that happens through the exchange structure. How, you know, how do we make that disclosure work in the context of DeFi? So these are all incredibly difficult questions. Um, at the same time, I think there's a recognition that regulators are not, are not fully, um, are not fully, um, are still f kind of wrestling with how to answer it. So, for example, in the EU, um, they have come up with this Mika legislation, which is a very comprehensive framework for oversight of crypto, but there's no DeFi in it, right? So there's no oversight for DeFi. Um, as far as I understand it, um, there is no project yet as to how to oversee DeFi because regulators are still trying to figure out how to get a handle on it. Here, the way in which we've engaged with DeFi is, for example, some of the actions that have come up in the case of um, in the case of Tornado Cash um, has been to essentially ban the application as far as possible. Um, you know, in um, with uh, you know with Treasury essentially looking to um, you know shut that application down in some form um, because the idea here is that it has been used for a variety of potentially illegal um, money laundering, terrorist financing, and so forth. And so the, 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 the response here has been just to completely shut down the technology. Now, clearly that's not going to work in every case. And clearly it's not like something that the industry and others want to happen in every case, that every single time there's a problem with the technology, you simply shut down the application. That's just not a very American thing to do. So, you know, trying to understand how to make regulators get comfortable thinking about new ways in which one can do traditional functions like disclosure um thinking about accountability and how to, to to operationalize accountability for distributed computer networks these are all incredibly tough problems there's no easy answer here and i think what we have is really to get everyone's brains engaged industries brains regulators brains international regulators brains Everyone's, you know, intelligence has to be pooled to figure out how to deal with this because it's not going away anytime soon. If anything, you know, um, these applications are becoming much more sophisticated as as our understanding of their underlying technology grows over time. Absolutely. Wow. I think it's easier said than done. And I think it's a task that will continue to be refined over the years. But um, I wanted to also talk about regulatory sandboxes now that you were mentioning these these kinds of spaces. So can you discuss the concepts yeah, of, of these sandboxes and how they might be utilized to foster innovation in the DeFi space while also ensuring compliance? Yeah, great. Um, so regulatory sandboxes are Administ admin uh, regulatory innovation. So these are innovations that have been created by regulators to try and understand how technology works. What a sandbox is is essentially a um, a lab uh, of 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 a, of a sort that regulators have in which they are testing out new kinds of applications, technologies, fintech um, to try and see how it might work in the real world. So a number of different jurisdictions um, have deployed sandboxes. So the UK, for example, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority has a sandbox where um, they invite innovators to come and, and, and test out their technologies. And so the regulators can see how these might work in real time. 
Um, and what that does is give regulators information. It gives them some idea of how um, a brand new technology, just to kick the tires in a brand new technology. So for example, if you have um, a kind of, um, you know, some kind of new payments app to see how that works when money is being sent in using new kinds of smartphone interfaces or at certain kinds of, with certain kinds of add-on features. Um, so that gives regulators information that can help them to think about ways in which some of the risk can be mitigated. For example, um, should one slow down a particular application? Should one, um, you know, put limits on how much money can go through a particular application? So these are ways in which um, we can test out um, ideas. Um, the thing with sandboxes, though, is that they are limited in their usefulness. So they're super useful, but they are limited in their usefulness. Like, even though we have regulators getting some idea of how a technology works, it's still not the real world. It's still a very stylized setting. It's still a very controlled environment. So for example, certain sandboxes have limits as to how many users you can have. I believe in Australia, the, the limit was something like 100 users that can be included within the sandboxes um, technology that's being tested. Um, that's not the real world. There's always going to be more than 100 people. The way people use it might not be how the sandbox how they how the sandbox sees them using it. So people might use a technology in a very different way. Um, you know, so you know these are things that we have to be mindful of that even though regulators are experimenting, even though they're trying to you know be open to innovation, have these sandboxes where these innovations can be tested out, there's limits in how useful these these regulatory innovations can be. Now here in the US, both the CFTC and the SEC have, um, little sandboxes of their own. So Lab CFTC is 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 an is an awesome um, is a really awesome part of the CFTC, which is dedicated to understanding new kinds of innovations in the market as a way to inform regulation um, as as a whole. Um, so you know, clearly we're trying things out, but we have to but we have to think bigger and deeper and more collaboratively about what the fullest permutations of new technologies are likely to be. And that really involves us getting messy and talking and kicking the tires, workshopping, um, and just being patient with each other to figure out what the, you know, how to get this regulation right. Wow, fantastic summary, great description. And um, I also wanted to hear from you, how do you see the regulatory landscape for DeFi evolving in the coming years and what advice do you have for DeFi projects navigating the, this ecosystem? Yeah, you know, the the question of evolution is a is a really interesting one. I think it's gonna be um it's gonna be fascinating to see what happens because different jurisdictions are responding to DeFi in different ways. Um so for example, when one looks at when one looks at the EU, um, there's a recognition that some kind of framework is needed, um, but exactly what that framework is going to be is, is anybody's guess. Um, at the same time, I think there's a certain openness to seeing what happens with DeFi. Um, I think the idea here is not to ban DeFi, certainly, but to um, just to see how it evolves and, and what kind of what kind of status and market impact is likely to get as a result. Um, I think here in the US, we are you know, we are at the initial stages of trying to figure this out. Um, as you know, Sylvia, 
we do not have a regulatory framework for crypto. We are still struggling with centralized finance, let alone getting to DeFi, decentralized finance. And yet, of course, um, as you pointed out, Sylvia, there are, you know, applications that are underway, uh, developers that are building these applications. Um, But I think there's also a fear that uh, the absence of a regulatory framework, um, a lot of enforcement that has happened lately, that that might result in applications potentially being shut down. See, for example, Tornado Cash. Um, So, you know, there is there is a sense potentially that developers are not sure as to the risks they face in this environment. Could there be liability that faces them in this environment? Um, that's something that they have to also deal with. Now, there was one interesting case that happened um, recently, which related to Uniswap. It was a, um, a kind of class action that was brought in that context. And in that case, the judge did say that, you know, you can't hold developers responsible. At the same time, there have been some CFTC cases, for example, uh, concerning a DeFi application called Open, O-P-Y-N. Um, I think that's how it's spelled, um, where developers were held respond, you know, liable. Um, and so there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty here, um, and that certainly can play to the incentives of developers when thinking about uh, potentially where to launch their applications or where to think about you know, how to uh, come up with new applications um, because the, the oversight framework that we have in the U.S. is very much in its initial stages, and we're still grappling with how best to, to get a handle on it. Of course, we definitely have a long way to go. And I just wanted to conclude, um, what can individuals and organizations in the DeFi space do to stay informed about these evolving legal and regulatory developments? Um, listen to this podcast. Um, that's a good one to start with. I think, you know, you guys are doing an incredible um, service to uh, disseminate information, ideas and research uh, to everyday people. So, um, you know, I think one of the, the, the one of the best things about crypto and DeFi in some ways is the fact that there's a lot of people willing to share knowledge and information and uh, to talk about these technologies. Um, so I think keeping keeping abreast of that is is super useful. Um, in addition, I think it's it's worthwhile also paying attention to what regulators are saying. So increasingly, there are you know white papers that regulators are producing um, about DeFi. For example, in the EU, there's been a, a you know research papers, white papers that you know speak to DeFi. Uh, the Bank of International Settlements, for example, is another one. Are you know are set up where we, we might see um, regulators provide some kind of guidance or, you know, thoughts about DeFi. So these are all publicly available um, sources for folks just to learn about the new kinds of technologies that are coming up, but also just how regulators are responding to what they see as being emerging trends in this technology. And that is a really interesting uh, way to to get into the brains of some really smart people who are doing informed work, but, you know, to try and get a sense of how regulators are positioning themselves to deal with this technology that essentially doesn't map onto the traditional kinds of paradigms that they have been used to handling. So definitely pay attention to that because that tells you a lot about where regulation and arguably market structure in this, in this, you know, in our, um, national ecosystem might be going, as well as obviously internationally with the BIS, Bank of International Settlements, the EU and others. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Isha. It was fascinating to talk to you. Do you have any uh, concluding remarks, anything else you would like to add um, before we wrap this recording? Yeah, um, I think, you know, one of the things that I would like to just highlight is just how exciting this is. I think for many of us as uh, legal academics or as people who are, you know, into the technology and just trying to understand it, this is a fascinating time to be alive um, to see a lot of innovation development in new kinds of protocols to see existing protocols that have been in the market for a while become much more sophisticated and usable um, to see um, to, you know to see these use cases start to expand in their in their reach um, you know these are exciting times and for those of us who do regulation in this space I think it's an incredibly important moment for us to try and, you know, figure out how to bring the traditional legal system, our paradigms, our new ways, new innovations in law, new ways of thinking about regulation to bring that to bear um, to, to this field. So that's a very exciting thing for us to, to get to do. And, and I'm so glad that you guys are very much at the forefront of trying to encourage us to do it. Thank you. Love that. And I also love how you ended this on a very positive note. And it is a very exciting industry and a very special time indeed. So thank you so much, Isha. Once again, we loved having you on the Owl Explains podcast. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time at another one of our Hootenannies. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hootful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.